0: I'm here today with Professor Michael Katz, Professor. Great to see you. Thanks for joining me on the episode.
1: My pleasure. Good to see you again, Jake.
0: I met Professor Katz this past summer at Breadloaf at uh, Middlebury Breadloaf School of English, and I was lucky enough to be in your class on realism, which I really enjoyed and had a great time, learned a lot from you and I wanted to talk to you today a little bit about your story, your background, and some of the things that you've been you've been working on. Um, if you wouldn't mind, Professor, just saying a few words about who you are, where you come from, what you do that kind of that kind of thing would be awesome.
1: Okay. Um, born in New York City, grew up in New Jersey, went to high school back in New York City, a private school, a Horace Mann School. Um, after that, I went to Williams College, where I majored in Russian. I was their first Russian major. When I got there, I asked the, they asked me what I wanted to study. I said, Russian. They said, we don't have a major. I said, well, you're going to have to get one, because I want to study it. <laughs> so they actually got a Russian major, and I was the first one to do it. Um, when I finished college, I got a fellowship to go to Oxford. And went for two years in the first instance, but liked it so much, and my foundation that was paying my way agreed to pay for me to stay and get a PhD. In Oxford, it's called a DPhil. So I got my graduate degree at Oxford, came back in 1972, and started teaching at my alma mater, where I taught at Williams for 12 years before I moved to the University of Texas at Austin where I spent another 14 years there as chair of a Department of Slavic Languages and Literature and as director of a federally funded Russian and East European Studies Center. And then in 1998, left Texas, came back to New England and took a job at Middlebury College as dean of language schools and schools abroad. Ran the Summer Language Institute and traveled to the various places that our students study overseas Hmm. and set up some new programs. I retired in 2010 and haven't looked back. I still teach a bit. I do their January interterm called J-term here and I teach at Breadloaf in the summers, which I've been doing now for about 10 summers and enjoy both very much, but also like being off during the semesters. So I'm reversing the academic schedule. I'm off during the semesters, teach during January and summer.
0: I like that. I like that reversal. Do you, uh, do you have a course coming up in January that you're about to
1: teach? I do. It's called Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment.
0: Oh, awesome. Well, I'm excited to talk about this book today because I've been picking it up, putting it down, but I've been really enjoying your translation. I'll put it up in the camera here so people can see. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Yeah, so I just read last night, I think it was the third dream that Raskolnikov has. And this is when he this Go ahead. Is when he sees the uh, the coat in his old apartment and then he removes it and sees the old woman and, Mm -hmm. I guess, relives the murder.
1: Good. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Can you tell me a little bit? I mean, that that was a stunning. I want to get into that dream a little bit and your interest in the dreams, but can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to translate this novel?
1: Sure. Um, The publisher wrote to me uh, I happened to be in Russia at the time, an email, and they said, we're looking for somebody to do a translate a new translation of Crime and Punishment. And I said, did I know anybody? They asked. I said, yes, of course, me. And they said, well, you've done so many books already for Norton, we'd really like to find somebody else. So I wrote back and I said, okay, well, if you don't want the best. I'll have to look around and see if I can find somebody. So they wrote back and they said, okay, we've reconsidered. (laughs) Write us a proposal and tell us why your version would be better than the best-selling one, which is by a couple, Richard Pivier and Larissa Volkhonskaya. He's British. She's Russian. He doesn't know Russian all that well, so... She does a literal translation from Russian into English, passes it to him, and he makes it conversational English. Mm. And then they go back and forth and produce. They've translated almost all of Dostoevsky. And they asked me, the publisher asked me, if I would explain how my version would be different from theirs. So I had a close look at theirs, and sat down and put on my thinking cap and came up with three different answers. One of them was sense of humor. Dostoevsky has a very dark sense of humor, and Crime and Punishment shows that off to great effect, and their translation didn't. I think they don't have a sense of humor. So they didn't appreciate <laughs> Dostoevsky's sense of humor. The second one was, the second way I was going to be better than theirs was in the use of the elevated style when Raskolnikov is, meets Marmaladev uh, in, I think it's book one, I forget that, I think chapter five, but I'm not sure, in the tavern and Marmaladev is drunk and begins spouting Christian truths, which in fact serve as the basis for the religious message of the novel, which we don't find out for pages, hundreds of pages, Uh, Marmeladov rises to the heights of rhetorical eloquence. Mm -hmm. And he mixes Old Russian with the church language, which is called Old Church Slavic. And like Latin, Latin words in English, those are higher style words. And I felt that Kavir-Volohonsky didn't make use of the distinction between Russian and Old Church Slavic to elevate the speech, which is not only Marmoladov's, but of course Sonia's when she starts preaching the gospel
0: that sermon Marmeladov sermon happens very early on in right in the book and yep. you could easily miss it because you're you're thinking about raskolnikov and the murder that's going to happen and he's just in this bar and this guy keeps talking about you know he's uh almost projecting about his life a little bit and yep. and you get some of the religious undertones of his speech or his sermon But why is this such an important part of the the book in your mind?
1: Because he's revealing the religious truth that Raskolnikov is eventually going to embrace. We don't know that at the time. Sonia is preaching the same gospel when he goes to confess to her. And when he asks her to read the story of Lazarus, the resurrection of Lazarus, And Sonia gives him the same message. And then in Raskolnikov's fifth dream, well, this is a spoiler alert, Jake, you haven't read it to the end. But Raskolnikov has a fifth dream in the epilogue, which is absolutely crucial and also has a religious vision in it. And at the end of the novel, we're not sure, just after he leaves it as an open question, but he says, could her faith, her religious belief, become his religious belief? And that's left as an open question.
0: Hmm. Now, was the epilogue added after the novel was published? Because I know there's controversy no. about the epilogue.
1: There's controversy as to whether it's appropriate to the novel. But no, it was part of the, the main uh, design for the book.
0: So I think my question is, and this might be useful for people who are watching this, who have never read Crime and Punishment and might not know what we're talking about with Marmalade of Serban and and even Raskolnikov's murder, which is the main, I guess, point of the or the the most important scene is the murder itself, probably. Um, But why, in your mind, should people read Crime and Punishment? Why is it a masterpiece?
1: Well, for one thing, it's a great mystery. It's a detective novel, but different from a conventional detective novel, since we know right from the beginning who committed the murder. Uh, it isn't a who done it, but one critic actually said it's a why he done it. So what we're after is the motive: why on earth does Raskolnikov decide to murder two old, well, one old lady, and then the other one he does. Accidentally, she wanders in, so he murders a second time. But he constructs an experiment to see what would happen if he murders an old woman. He finds out that he can't get away with it. Why not? Largely because of his conscience. And his conscience, according to Dostoevsky, is the voice of God which speaks inside of him. Hmm. So it meant this voice of God also manifests itself in the dreams. You mentioned dream three. There are five dreams in the book, and each of the five dreams, first one is that awful one of the beaten horse, each of the five dreams presents him with a message from his subconscious which is also the voice of God in Dostoevsky's metaphysics.
0: Now, I didn't realize this, but Dostoevsky was writing well before Freud's time, and I thought maybe the two of those figures in history would be linked in some way, but Freud comes way after Dostoevsky.
1: Not way after, but he comes after Dostoevsky. And um, Freud wrote a very interesting statement. He said, I didn't discover the subconscious. It was the poets and philosophers who came before me who discovered the unconscious. I merely devised a way of studying it. Mm. So Dostoev- Freud is crediting authors like Dostoevsky with the discovery and the exploration of the unconscious. And that's what those dreams are about.
0: What do you think uh got you so interested in the dreams? Because I know you've written a lot about Raskolnikov's dreams. Mm-hmm. Why is that so fascinating to you?
1: Well, just for this reason that it's the first exploration in literature of man's subconscious, and the Russians do it more than the Germans, the English, the French. So dreams became typical of 19th century russian novels characters are falling asleep all over the place and when they do they see wonderful visions mm-hmm. and we learn all sorts of things about them in their dreams that we don't learn from their words or their actions
0: so my interpretation of the third dream of raskolnikov which i read last night in which he goes uh, back to him it he goes back to his um landlord's apartment, right? Or his yep. own apartment. Um might be the, the landlord. landlord. It's the landlord's apartment and he sees this cloak or this jacket that's sitting on a on a chair and mm-hmm. he thinks that if he removes this jacket, he'll be he'll also remove his guilt that he's been feeling after the murder and he removes the jacket and it's the woman, the old woman who he murdered, you know, weeks before in the novel. And he tries to murder her again. So he picks up the ax and and starts hitting her again in his dream. But she doesn't feel the the strikes of the ax. So I think my interpretation would be that this murder, this heinous thing that he does, will never leave him. It's just on his conscience forever.
1: That's right. He can't kill her, basically. He tries to kill her again. So... They say murderers often revisit the scene of the crime. So he revisits the scene of the crime and tries to reenact it in his dream, hitting her over the head. But she doesn't die, unlike the first time. Mm -hmm. When he actually hits her, she dies. He cracks her skull open. But now he realizes he can't kill her, and it's going to haunt him.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. So
1: you're right i excited right. to
0: keep reading. I like the line, and this is a famous line in Crime and Punishment, uh, I think. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But he says, I didn't kill the woman, I killed the principal. Right. What does he mean? What does he mean by that?
1: Well, that's one of the explanations. It isn't necessarily the right one. But remember I said he's trying to figure out why he done it. And we are trying to figure out why he done it. And one of the reasons he did it, or he thinks he did it, is because he had this theory, the theory of the extraordinary man versus the average man. And he, in his theory, the extraordinary man has the right to, buy, to cross over moral boundaries and commit crimes if it's necessary for the happiness and well-being of mankind well this one clearly is not and when he tells later when he tells sonya what his theory is she says basically you got to be kidding
0: mm-hmm. and is this a a philosophy or a political belief that was happening in Russia during the time? That's one thing that I don't think I understand enough about crime and punishment is what's happening in Russia in the mid-1800s when it's set politically.
1: Well, there are terrorist groups that are beginning to form anti czarist groups, and there are Uh, young people who are subscribing to nihilism, which is uh, a philosophy that says nothing matters. There is no God. Um, There is no absolute truth. Nietzsche is writing a little bit later than this. They don't know each other, Nietzsche and Dostoevsky. They don't know each other's works, but Nietzsche is Writing about the same sort of ideas, the death of God. So here's Dostoevsky, who has his character murdering the old lady, and in doing so, seems to be striking out at conventional morality and saying, I, an extraordinary man like Caesar, like Napoleon, I have the right to overstep um, moral boundaries. Let me tell you a bit about the title of the book. The Russian is and the word means crime, but it's only one letter different from the word transgression. So what Dostoevsky is punning on, which you don't know if you don't know Russian, is the fact that Raskolnikov breaks the law, he commits a crime, he violates legal statutes, but at the same time, he's violating moral strictures and structures, and that's a transgression, that is a spiritual crime. Hmm. So he's committing a legal crime, and he's committing a spiritual crime. And when he confesses, you have to decide for yourself what he's confessing to at the end of the book.
0: Oh, it leaves it open, whether it's a crime or he's confessing to I'm leaving
1: it open because you haven't read it. (laughs) I think it's pretty clear in the book.
0: It's funny. I actually have read Crime and Punishment, but it was so long ago, and it was a summer reading book in high school, which is pretty tough. I mean, to read Crime and Punishment at the beach, it's... Heavy duty.
1: (laughs) There's a wonderful cartoon I have, which shows a man in a deck chair and he's reading Crime and Punishment. And a policeman is walking along the beach and the policeman says to him, I'm sorry, sir. You'll have to come with me. Crime and Punishment is not beach reading. (laughs) It's definitely not. No
0: way. Uh, Do you remember the first time that you read Crime and Punishment?
1: I was in high school also, probably about 15 and was swept away. I didn't realize that I'd be spending so much of my life translating it and teaching it, but I certainly knew that it was a good thing.
0: Now, Horace Mann had a pretty big impact on you based on our conversations. It did. What was it like there during your time?
1: It was all men. It was upper middle class. We wore blue blazers and red paisley ties every day to class. We had to pass inspection as we went into the cafeteria for lunch. If our pants were too short or too tight, we were sent home and told to dress appropriately. Uh, I had excellent teachers, most of them. Um, Let's see, I worked harder than I had ever worked, much harder than I worked at Williams in terms of homework, hmm. I was doing some nights as much as four or five hours of homework.
0: Now, was English always and your specialty or la- languages in English and reading? Well, I,
1: started studying, I started studying Russian at Horace Mann and became, I was studying Latin and Russian and became quite enamored of the Russian and then dropped the Latin and continued to do Russian. No, it was a, it was a good experience. And given that my town in New Jersey, where I grew up, didn't have a high school at all, I had to choose some high school to go to. Most kids went to the one in the neighboring town. My parents didn't think that was a very good school. So they chose to send me to a private school at Horace Mann.
0: Wasn't a board. It's not a boarding school, right? You had to commute. No, there.
1: it's country day school.
0: Was it a long commute during high school?
1: An hour and a quarter each way. Oh, wow. On on the bus and subway. I learned Russian on the subway. My Russian vocabulary words. I would get on the train at school and take my Russian book. I would get a seat because it was the first stop. It was the end of the line. So I always got a seat and would divide up the vocabulary words that I had to learn that night into units, depending on how long the stop was, the distance between each stop on the subway. So I, in fact, there are some words that I remember where I learned them. That's what the next stop was on the subway. Wow. I could, I still have my book. I can look and see the marks I put in the vocabulary list to see how I divided them up.
0: So right from the get-go, it seems like you were enamored by the Russian language.
1: Yes. And then I went to Russia after my freshman year at Williams. My Russian professor managed to find a scholarship to get me over there. And I spent five weeks in Russia. And when I came back, I said to my parents, I don't know how, but the rest of my life is going to be involved with Russia. Hmm. And they said, whatever makes you happy, Sonny. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what was um, what was that experience like going to Russia for the first time after studying it, being the only one in your major at Williams, right? Yes. What was that experience like going there? Were you alone?
1: No, it was a group of 30 high school kids who were taken together. Uh, it was through the University of Michigan. Summer program, part of the official U.S.-USSR exchange agreement. So we we visited five different cities, and toured the usual sites. Also went to some unusual sites: a ball bearing factory, uh, an apricot orchard, to see all sides of the Soviet Union. And it was a wonderful experience as i say when i came home i knew that that's what i wanted to be involved with the language and the culture
0: Hmm. now when did you start translating
1: i was at williams teaching and i think it was in 1980 and i kept referring to a particular novel by alexander herzen that had never been translated And I kept saying in class, I wish somebody had translated this. If they had, we'd be reading it. So I was summarizing the novel in class for the students. And again, kept complaining. I, gee, why doesn't somebody translate it? And one of my students said to me, politely, why don't you shut up and translate it? (laughs) Stop bellyaching. He didn't say... He didn't say shut up, but the idea was stop stop complaining and do it yourself. So I answered him and I said, I'm not a translator. And I got to thinking about that and wondered what is a translator and who does translations? So did some research and found that most translators are academics at American colleges and universities And just at about that time, the National Endowment for the Humanities was announcing a new grant program to fund new translations of books that had never been translated. So I put two and two together, the student's question, challenge, and the application form for the grant, wrote a proposal, got a grant, and translated it in two summers Hmm. It's Alexander Herzen's novel, Who is to Blame? And it really initiates a series of novels that each speak to its predecessor about what was wrong with Russian society, the ills of Russian society at the time.
0: I think I need to read that one because it will help me contextualize what's going on in crime and punishment and all the different philosophies and political disagreements during the sixties, right? 1860s. Yes. Forties,
1: forties, Oh, forties. Well, you read, you read fathers and children, and that really is also very much of the same discussion. In fact, um, what is, uh, who is to blame? Is the predecessor of the of fathers and children? Who is to blame is 1840s, mid-1840s, and fathers and children is 1860. So 20 years later, it's a reply to who is to blame and tries to explain who it is.
0: What major changes happen in Russia's society from the 40s to the 60s? What were the major, I guess, structural societal changes that happened during those years
1: well mostly it's a change in generations social conditions didn't change that much um the Tsar nicholas who succeeded alexander the first nicholas the first was repressive type so he ruled until 1855 so during the 40s There was considerable censorship on literature, and um, mm, nothing much was changing in Russian society. Mm -hmm. So the forces for change were growing under great pressure, were growing, and gradually emerged in the 60s and 70s. Mm.
0: So the censorship of literature, I've been reading a little bit about that because that's what sent Dostoevsky to be killed, right? Because he was talking to people about banned literature.
1: That's correct.
0: He had an interesting life. I didn't realize he was only sick. He he only lived to 60 years old.
1: He became very ill. um, In those days, 60 years wasn't a bad lifespan, by the way. Hmm especially for somebody who came from less uh, wealthy background. And Dostoevsky, unlike Turgenev, unlike Pushkin, Dostoevsky didn't come from, or unlike Tolstoy, Dostoevsky didn't come from a wealthy family.
0: Now, what was he reading and discussing underground that was so problematic with Russian society?
1: It was a letter written by the critic Belinsky that was critical of Russian society and proposing solutions for the ills of Russia. And he read it out loud to the assembled circle. And it was stormed by Czarist police. Several people there were arrested. He was sentenced to death. And as you remember, was led out the morning of the supposed execution, and just as he was about to be shot, a rider comes up to the party and is waving a piece of paper, and it's the pardon from the czar. And <clears throat> people think it was either a bad joke on Nicholas's part, or else, um, or else what? I don't know that he was planning to do it all the time.
0: I can't imagine how that would that experience would impact you for the rest of your life. Because you well, think he you're going to die, you think it. you're going to get shot and then you get pardoned at the very last second. Yep. And Dostoevsky struggled with he he had epilepsy for his whole life too, right?
1: Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: So how did that how did that impact him? I wonder.
1: Well, he He experienced what's a pre-epileptic aura, uh, a moment of clarity just before a fit would begin. And if you want to read about it, you read his second novel, The Idiot, where the hero, Prince Muishkin is also an epileptic and experiences these moments of clarity in which everything becomes clear the whole universe opens up and you understand everything. Very mystical. Interesting. And Dostoevsky had these moments and he describes them in the novel. Now, I think that's the only, that's the only novel that he really goes into the epilepsy.
0: I think it's a hard question to answer, but I'm curious your thoughts. If you were asked, is Dostoevsky a genius? Would you, how would you answer that question?
1: It's not hard to answer. No doubt. Um, Whatever a genius means, the thing about Russian literature is there were two major figures in the second half of the 19th century, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. Very different one from the other, but both absolutely world-class first rate geniuses. Dostoevsky wrote five novels. Um, from Brothers Karamazov to, uh, from Crime Punishment to Brothers Karamazov, the last one. And each one is different, uh, something better than the previous one, some think he really only wrote one novel his whole career and just kept changing the title, using a scissors and stopping writing, changing the title and going on with the next one. They all deal with very similar themes but a different spin in each of the books.
0: So after he was saved from death and pardoned, he was sent to Siberia for four years for hard labor? Four years.
1: Uh, much long, He was in exile for 20 years, but he had four years of hard labor. And then he was able to come back also in Siberia, but just closer to the capital and settle down And uh, he was married there. His wife was with him. And he, I don't know what he did. When he got back, he wrote a book called Memoirs of the House of the Dead, in which he describes his prison experience and the various prisoners that he encountered during his time in Siberia. It's a fascinating read.
0: Was he a contemporary of Solzhenitsyn?
1: No, 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 Solzhenitsyn is 20th century.
0: Okay, it's later. Um, So Tolstoy and and Dostoevsky never met each other?
1: There was one occasion when they were in the same room, but they avoided each other.
0: Were they adversaries?
1: Well, uh, yes and no. Um, They never exchanged words, they didn't write to each other. They didn't want to meet each other, that was clear, but when Dostoevsky read Anna Karenina, Tolstoy's great novel, he decided that he would rewrite the ending in his own style and published an essay on Anna Karenina, a review of Anna Karenina, in which he praised the book but then rewrote it. And Tolstoy is meant to have died with a copy of Brothers Karamazov on his night table. Hmm. So they both admired each other's work from a distance.
0: Hmm. And where does Chekhov fall in? Was Chekhov, I know he had met Tolstoy before.
1: Chekhov is later. Dostoevsky dies in 1881. Tolstoy dies in 1910. He goes on forever. Um, But his end... Writings are mostly religious treatises and religious works, but Chekhov writes his plays and stories in the eighteen eighties and nineties uh, and really stands apart. Chekhov is doesn't deal with the the depth of philosophy and religion that Tolstoy and Dostoevsky do. Tolstoy Uh, Chekhov writes wonderful plays and short stories and short stories, plays about the really the downfall of the decline of Russia at the end of the 19th century.
0: Now, um, Tolstoy writes a lot about society and the current events that were happening in Russia and in. I mean, I guess from my reading, Dostoevsky is writing about psychology with the political overtones that are occurring in Russia during the 1860s. But it's mostly in-depth of, of the psychology of the characters. I haven't read enough Tolstoy. I haven't read any of his larger works, but that's just my, my read on the different styles of the writers.
1: That's fair. Dostoevsky is the novelist of depth, and Tolstoy is the novelist of reds.
0: Do you prefer one or the other or do you do you appreciate depends both? on
1: who I'm reading and who I'm teaching. Mm-hmm. If I'm teaching Dostoevsky, I prefer him. Um, no, I would say that <clears throat> I prefer Dostoevsky. I'm going to be teaching this summer, I told you, yes. Of you course, yeah. on War and Peace and Brothers Karamazov, reading the two blockbuster works by each one. And why do you pair those two together? Because they're usually too long to include in other courses. So this this says Tolstoy's War and Peace is a great work, but it doesn't fit in a semester's course. And Brothers Karamazov is not the novel you choose if you're teaching a Dostoevsky course, because it's too long and there are too many other ones. So I decide I talked to Emily. Uh, Bartels and said, what if I just paired these two? And she said, wonderful, these two monsters of Russian literature.
0: Well, if I take that course, I'm going to need to get a head start on that reading.
1: You will. (laughs) You will, you will. The publisher um, is talking about giving us advanced copies of Karamazov because it won't have been officially published until July And we need it in June.
0: So you translate these massive texts. How long does it take you? Like, how long did it take you to translate Brothers Karamazov?
1: Three years. But it was my COVID project. When there wasn't much else to do, there were no lectures, no films, no concerts to go to at Middlebury. So what do you do? You sit home and translate Brothers Karamazov. Hmm. So, I have something to show for covid i should I should dedicate it to Covid
0: Wow, it's a massive project um do you ever look back at previous translations that you've done and say that maybe wasn't the right translation or like yes. I'd love to know about your development as a translator over the the time that you've translated these very large books
1: well. The it is difficult to teach books that I translated 40 years ago. My language has changed and my knowledge of Russian has improved so that um, if I were to do it again, I would do it slightly differently. I have to swallow hard and when a student says, why did you translate this word like that? And I look at the Russian to see what the original was. And I scratch my head and I said, I have no idea. At the time, it occurred to me that that was the best way to translate. If I were going to do it now, I would do it in this way. The thing about literature is each time you read it again, you learn more about it, understand it better. Mm -hmm. So a translator would understand it better, too, and come up with a different. This doesn't happen that often. I mean, most of the time, I like my work. Mm-hmm. I like what I've done. But every now and then, there's a word, and you just grimace when you come to it and say, oh, God, how could I do that?
0: One of the things I love in this, and this is just from my reading last night, in um, part three, uh, you get the character who accuses Raskolnikov of being a murderer, and right. his, y- you capture his dialect. He says, "moidoa." like a, a lisp like that or misspelled yep. version of murderer that must well, be so difficult to find in and translate the different dialects is. or lisps or way people say things that's not conventional
1: have you met the landlady with the german accent yet i don't think so when you meet her i mean her her russian is very funny because it's heavily accented Just the way if you do a German accent in English, it sometimes sounds funny. So it's hard to capture that. Or peasant speech, awful, to capture peasant speech and make it sound illiterate.
0: Now, when you're translating, is that probably the most difficult part of the the job, is translating the unconventional aspects of the Russian, or...? What's the most difficult part of that, the process of translating I it? would
1: say that's one of the hardest, <clears throat> to convey the, they're called idiolect, the individual language of a particular ca- character. Um, and accents, foreigners, um, <clears throat> uneducated folks, these are very difficult to translate
0: Mm mm-hmm yeah I mean I'm really appreciating the nuances of this and it's taken me a while I mean I'm picking it up and putting it down but but I'm enjoying it so thank you
1: you're welcome I was in I'm I've been auditing a course here at Middlebury and um after the first class it's a music history of western music and after the first class a student came up to me And he pulled out a copy of my Crime and Punishment from his backpack. And he said, are you the Michael Katz who translated this? I said, yes. And he said, I'm reading it and it's terrific. And I said, that's great. He said, I never thought I would meet the Michael Katz who translated (laughs) Crime and Punishment. I said, well, you met him. Do you want a signature? (laughs) (laughs) Love it.
0: What's that class about? The Western music. What are you What are you learning there?
1: We started with plain song, and we're now working up to postmodernism. We've been through the Renaissance and the Baroque, classical and romantic. It's been a wonderful course. Um, it involves listening. Uh, he demonstrates phrases in class. The only thing that's been difficult for me has been the harmonies, because these are music majors, and they've all studied harmony and composition. So when he says, does anybody recognize the diminished seventh here? I look and I say, I don't know. I don't care. I don't recognize the diminished seventh. If I ran over it, I wouldn't recognize the diminished seventh. Or an augmented fourth, I don't know. <laughs> That's a, um, that's, that's a pretty nice perk work.
0: about being a professor is you can audit courses. You can just go sit down in the lecture hall.
1: I just chose my course for next semester, and it's on international film. We'll watch 10 films, screen 10 films, and talk about the films in the 10 weeks of the semester.
0: Wow. Have you been doing this for a while, auditing courses? Yes.
1: Yeah, I've audited one one almost every semester.
0: That's one thing that I would love to do more of here at Gilman, where I teach, is to sit in on some of the other teachers as they're teaching. And I I did that a lot when I first started here, but it just gets so busy. Um, I think that I guess the closest thing that I can do to that is doing this podcast where I can learn from, you know, I talk to all the teachers here and coaches and we can set up Zoom podcasts, but I learn a lot from these episodes.
1: I watched a few of them you sent i look, went online and watched a couple with the coaches
0: we did uh we did one with brian wolf a couple weeks ago who's brian from, from uh, Breadloaf, he oh, teaches um uh-huh. he, i taught or i uh, took his american history slash art class humbugs and visionaries last summer
1: mm-hmm.
0: so that was fun um so what do you like so much about teaching at Breadloaf in the summer that's I guess, something you look forward to every year.
1: Students are so motivated. They're so excited to be back on the other side of the desk and uh, being students again, uh, that it's terrific. You never have to, they also know how to talk in class. You don't have to teach them. They know how to write, although they don't always think they know how to write, but most of them know how to write and can write it, produce an essay. Um, They know how to read and save up their questions. They're just wonderful students to teach undergrad. I love undergraduates too, but there's always problems with undergraduates, especially with their writing. Did you ever teach high school? No, I've taught, I've guest spoken in high school classes, but I've never taught high school.
0: Hmm. Yeah. One thing I loved about this past summer was how rich the conversations were, how deep we could get into a specific moment. The deep dive of, of those classes is pretty amazing.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So I'm looking forward to, uh, doing that again and hopefully taking one of your, one of your classes, if not this summer, then for sure again, because I love that realism class but i no do president. love i do love the russian literature so you know
1: well i'd be glad to have you but i'd understand if you decide to take another course
0: how has your teaching i guess influenced your i guess your other career your main career of translation like how do those two communicate with each other teaching and translation
1: i would say my main career is teaching my main career is not translating Translating is what I do um, early in the morning or during the summers. What I what I do mostly is teach and prepare for teaching and read essays, um, just what you do. Um, what's nice is to be able to teach a book that I'm working on. And Emily has been very good about that. She's let me teach... Uh, Kreutzer Sonata, when I was working on Tolstoy, she let me teach Crime and Punishment, and she's let me teach Karamazov when I'm working on that. So it's fun to get feedback from students about my current project. That's different from looking at something I translated 40 years ago, Mm -hmm. because this is something I'm working on right now.
0: Now, if you were recommending... A piece of russian literature to someone who has never really gotten into russian literature before maybe you wouldn't tell them to start with crime and punishment what would you recommend they they begin their journey into russian with
1: fathers and children it's short um it's easy to get into it isn't psychologically deep the way dostoevsky is It's not too philosophically broad the way Tolstoy is. Um, It's a good introduction to social classes, the peasants, the aristocracy, and the intellectual, Bazarov, who comes into the surroundings. It's typical plot in the sense of you've got a group assembled at a country estate And somebody invades the privacy and the uh, peacefulness, the serenity of life at the country estate and destroys it. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that's the one to start with. And then maybe Crime and Punishment, because it's a a mystery novel. Uh, I don't know if I told you this story, but I was teaching it once at the University of Texas. And I start started the discussion with, what do we think of this? Who likes this book? What do you you make of it? And they got to discussing it. And I noticed that one lad sitting in the way back of the classroom was itchy and looked like he had something to contribute. And I said, okay, John, what do you want to say? And he said, well, nobody has said this so far. I said, well, what is it, John? And he said, "This is a damn good novel. (laughs) (laughs) That that only happens in Texas. That doesn't happen at Williams or Middlebury. But I mean, it was so sincere, right from the heart. Mm -hmm. Damn good. It is a damn good novel, a page-turner.
0: It is. It is. Yeah.
1: Except if you're working as hard as you are and then coaching and don't have time to read it straight through."
0: Well, yeah, because I want to give my full attention to it and be totally with it when I read it. It's tough when it's nine o'clock and you know you're trying to go to bed, and it's like I'm reading Crime and Punishment. It's heavy duty.
1: Well, Christmas vacation is just around the corner.
0: <laughs> yes, I'm gonna get through it. I'm gonna finish it. I'm I'm halfway done, but oh, good. Yeah, the well, character questions. The characters are so rich, complex, and I think my favorite. genre of literature is the psychological novel where you're exploring the consciousness of the characters and they all really represent some way of thinking and something deeper than what they come across. So Mm -hmm. I appreciate that.
1: Good choice uh, of a novel. If that's your taste.
0: (laughs) Do you prefer crime and punishment to brothers Karamazov or is it, is that a bad question?
1: Well, that's, that's a difficult question. Um, I think Crime and Punishment is better as a work of literature. It's more contained. It has answers. Brothers Karamazov is sprawling. It has subplots. Um, Have you ever read it, Karamazov?
0: I've given it a try. I I haven't finished it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wait. This spring, Mm -hmm. when the book is published, Um, The translation is published, but it's, it's harder to get into Karamazov, uh, harder to stick with. I think it's brilliant, but it has problems. And people have trouble finishing it.
0: I think one thing that I like about Dostoevsky is that he sort of like the marmalade scene, he has characters exposed spend on some large like sermon or lecture and you get a lot of wisdom and truth out of those lectures. I mean, I think you could sit with those very, very long speeches because I know there's one in brothers Karamazov, one of the brothers right. speaking about religion.
1: Yes. The grand inquisitor scene.
0: Mm-hmm. So I've gotten to that point, but I haven't gotten too far beyond well,
1: that. That's pretty far. That's good. It's a difficult passage.
0: Now, is your favorite scene in in uh, Crime and Punishment the Marmalade of scene?
1: It is. It is because um, it's underappreciated. It's often missed by readers who just say, "Oh, it's a drunk in a tavern," and who go past it. But if the if you have somebody make you stop and listen to it. I mean, when Marmeladov, at the end of his tirade, stands up, pulls out his arms and says, Jesus will welcome us. He'll say, welcome the children, suffer the children to come unto me. And he'll welcome the drunkards. And he'll welcome the thieves. I mean, what he's saying to Dostoevsky is, God forgives. Christ forgives. Forgiveness is what the New Testament is about. And um, that message is then carried through the rest of the book. And we know that forgiveness is possible if one feels the repentance. And the question is whether Raskolnikov ever comes to feel that amount of repentance, that he will be forgiven.
0: I know the title was going to be The Drunkards, correct? Of this that's right of this book. Yeah. Because so many of the scenes are set in bars and taverns and places Alcohol. that places that you wouldn't typically find God. And that's where, you know, Marmaladev finds God. Or sure. at least speaks and, about God.
1: And Sonia is a prostitute. And you don't expect prostitutes to the be bearers of the religious message of the novel. So Marmoladov the drunkard and Sonia the prostitute with the heart of gold. Uh, now, Bokov, by the way, didn't like Dostoevsky at all. He thought it was too obvious. And he makes fun of the scene where she's read to him uh, from the book of Lazarus, from the Bible, the story of Lazarus and they're sitting in her room with only a candle between them and Nabokov says basically oh please he <laughs> just can't accept it it's just too mawkish
0: hmm. well I'd love to ask you a little bit more um about your experience uh in charge of the language schools at Middlebury and what that was like f- for you to be the you know, the director, the, the leader of that school?
1: The, um, the fun part of that was actually during the summer when eight very talented and very devoted directors would be able to run their programs independently very independently because the students weren't allowed to talk to each other. And the faculty didn't talk to each other. They all spoke in the languages that they were studying, the language pledge operating during the summer. I have a a mug somewhere, one upstairs, that says no English spoken here, but we do speak. And that was the basis of the language pledge. And to a large extent, the reason for the success of the schools. But as dean, my mother said to me at one point, what does a dean do? What exactly do you do every day? And I said, you sit in your office and people call you or they come to see you and you have to make a decision. Mostly I decide things. So... um, Working with talented faculty running very ambitious programs in each of the eight languages we taught at the time was great fun and I could go to a a, a, um, a lecture in the Japanese school lecture in English of course um or to a play in the Russian school a concert in the French school and move around and spend i actually spent one, in the summer one day in each of the eight schools the full day interviewing students talking to faculty and <clears throat> sitting in on classes to get a sense of the quality of the instruction that was being offered to our students and i I think as a language teacher, it's one of the best jobs I've ever had.
0: Yeah. I love the, the pledge because it, I mean, it must be very, very hard. And I took Spanish growing up, but my Spanish isn't that great. But I remember this summer, I was playing pickup basketball at Middlebury and, you know, no one would talk to me. And all of a sudden I'm like, what's wrong with these people? And I realized (laughs) that they can only speak Spanish. They, they can't say anything else. So I was playing basketball with them and someone was setting a pick on someone. I was like, izquierda, izquierda. And uh, (laughs) on your left. But I had to join in and tried my best to speak Spanish so that I wasn't a total outlier.
1: I had, when I was dean, I had office hours. And one young woman from the Arabic school came to see me to complain. And I said, what's wrong? How can I help you? And she said, Well, we had a game. uh, We had a soccer match against the Spanish school. We required that women be on the field as well as men. Um, We had a soccer match with the Spanish school and they were shouting obscenities at us. And I said, was it in Spanish? And she said, yes. I said, well, that's okay." (laughs) And she said, but I understood them. And I said, well, but they didn't violate the language pledge. She said, no, but it was offensive. So I said, okay, here's an idea. You go to your Arabic teacher and you say to your Arabic teacher, you want to learn some expressions that are just so rude and grotesque that he he would never use them. But he's going to teach them to you. And I said, and then when you're playing the next team, you use those Arabic expressions and say them with your face full of rage. And she said, but they won't understand me. And I said, they'll look at your face and your tone of voice and they'll know it's not good. (laughs) So she said, thank you, Dean Katz. I was a genius giving her uh, some instruction for how to deal with this that's awesome
0: so when you were we were the dean of the language schools did you ever think about becoming a president of a university or did you like that position no. no
1: no what uh nor did i think about becoming dean of a college no i was i was excited about the job at middlebury because it kept me in the languages Um russian was one of the languages we did and i spent more time in the Russian school, had meals with the Russian school and could talk with the students. But I didn't want to get that far away from languages and be a dean or a president. Mm -hmm. So I was quite happy with my job as dean of language schools and also the schools abroad where I travel the world and set up new programs in China and in Brazil and Argentina, while I was Dean, and then, after I stepped down, um, they established programs in Arabic, first in um uh, Egypt, and then it moved to Jordan after the troubles in Egypt. Hmm. so that was it was great fun
0: hmm. yeah, and it allowed you to travel a lot i mean you've been you've been pretty much everywhere, right?
1: Um, Pretty much, I led a delegation of seven Middlebury faculty to China, and we visited three different cities in order to choose the best institution for sending our students to. Which one
0: did you choose?
1: Hangzhou, which is uh, one of the cities that Marco Polo describes in his travels in China. Hmm.
0: Where in China is it?
1: It is about an hour on the train south of Shanghai. Beautiful, beautiful city. And in fact, when I had a sabbatical after I my term as dean ended, my wife and I went back to Hangzhou and spent three months there just living in an apartment, getting to explore the place. Do you
0: speak Chinese too?
1: Not a word.
0: No? Did you pick up any when you were over there?
1: Nope. No? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, a few words. Please, thank you, but, you know. I know you speak French. I do speak French. Not so well, but I speak French. I don't speak French around the French school at Middlebury. But This would be too embarrassing.
0: But when you went to France recently, you could converse with people pretty easily over there. I could
1: converse. As long as I wasn't talking about the difference between Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. I was doing menu French, hotel French, uh where are the bathrooms French, that kind of stuff. I was good.
0: That's what I need. So <laughs> so I'll show you um we're doing a art show for the faculty at Gilman and I did a portrait of Dostoevsky a couple of years ago that you might appreciate. Oh yeah? Sure. Yeah, I don't know if you can see it. There he is. Hold it
1: down a little bit. I think it's good. There he is. Uh uh-huh. It's quite a forehead he has.
0: Yeah, he's got a massive forehead.
1: His cheeks, cheekbones. I think it's good. You've got a future, Jake.
0: Not bad. But, um, <laughs> Professor, thank you very much for for coming in today. It was a fun conversation. Always fun to talk to you. I learn a ton, and uh, you're welcome. I'm gonna enjoy the rest of this translation of *Crime and Punishment*. I appreciate all your work. Excellent. And uh, I'm looking forward to the summer and catching up a little bit more.
1: Good. Thanks for choosing me. I'm delighted to do it and wish you guys well.
0: Thank you. We'll uh, keep in touch and and I'll talk to you soon.
1: Okay. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks again.